Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Let's stand together in the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, as we are continuing in our teaching series, Colossians, where we have said that Jesus, this is what the book is about, Jesus is greater than anything. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 24 through 29. This is God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the steward from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come together to hear your word, as we come together to consider your word, we ask again that you would give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and hearts that understand. May the, those of us who have come in here thinking, I'm not changing or I'm not going to do anything, I pray that you would arrest our hearts today. That what you speak to us, because you are speaking to us as a body and you are speaking to us individually, that we would hear And not only here, but that we would joyfully obey. That we would leave this place a little bit more transformed into the image of Jesus. That we would look a little bit more like Jesus because of our time together. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we're getting started here, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to consider it about yourself, and that question is, who do you joyfully suffer for? I want you to think about that. Who do you joyfully suffer for other than yourself? Because, you know, we joyfully suffer for ourselves if the goal is good enough, don't we? Kind of like the violinist who diligently works her fingers to the bone, practicing scales eight hours a day, seven days a week, in the hopes that one day she'll stand um, in Carnegie Hall in play, or like that couple who sells joyfully, sells everything, and vows we're going to only eat peanut butter, je- peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodles, you got to eat ramen noodles, right, in order to reach a financial goal or to start that business that they've always dreamed of. We don't have a problem, if the goal's big enough, to sacrifice, to suffer for ourselves, But my question is, who do you joyfully suffer for other than yourself? 
And one of the greatest, you know, greatest living examples that I have ever seen of those who joyfully suffer for others is you moms. That should have gotten an amazing amen just then, right? I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do that one all over again. And one of the greatest living examples I've ever seen of those who joyfully suffer for others is you moms. Wake up. Um, There is just something uniquely powerful about the sacrificial love of a mom, isn't there? Uh, Dads, it's not that we don't love our children, but mom's love is is just a little different than ours because it's got more fire and tenacity than us guys, doesn't it? Uh, And our kids can differentiate between the two. I know this. I've seen it over and over. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in your families where, you know, a child falls down and skins up their knee or their, their knee or their elbow. And what does dad do? What happened? Are you okay? And, you know, kids want to be tough for dad a lot of times. They're like, yeah, I'm okay. I got this. And then what happens? Mom walks in the room. She asks the exact same question, but a little differently. What happened, honey? Are you okay? And what does the child do? She or he breaks down into this just uh, wailing, literally breaks down into a puddle of tears and just can't talk and, you know, all that. Why? Why is that? Because moms, you joyfully lay down your lives for your children in ways that us dads just won't do it, Okay. And, uh, you know, the reason you do that is because you believe, and this is why anyone lays down their life for somebody else, it's because they believe they're worth it. They are willing to sacrifice and die to themselves if they know that their children, I'm speaking about moms still, will benefit and prosper. That's why moms do that. And Jesus said in John 15, greater love, you all know this one, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he says in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, look at that, it bears much fruit. And this is what Jesus did for us, isn't it, church? He joyfully laid his life down. Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. See that? He hated the shame. He despised it and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But for the joy, you know what? We were in that joy that was set before him when he died. He suffered and died for us. And and this is the, the wonderful, beautiful thing about the gospel. It's not because we were worthy of him dying for us, but he saw that it was worth it. We were worth it for him dying. And, you know, there are, when we're talking about suffering, there's, there's two types, well, there's three types of suffering. There's the type of suffering that you suffer because of what you, bad decisions you made, okay? Bad, bad choices, financial choices you made, and then there's decisions that you don't make, just being a human being, every human being, uh, Suffers from sicknesses, death, financial stresses, relational conflict. That just comes to everybody. And then there's a third type of suffering that comes from being obedient. That comes from being obedient and faithful to Jesus. And that's the kind of suffering that we're looking at this morning. 
that Paul is talking about. Now, believers, we need faith for all three of them, but I want to focus in on there is a suffering that comes if we truly are living our lives to glorify Jesus. And it's one of the marks, suffering for following Jesus is a true mark that you are truly following Jesus. And because as a church we are seeking to be disciples who make, grow, and unleash gospel-centered disciples, listen, if we are really doing that, church, if we are really making disciples, we will suffer. But as this passage that we're going to get into teaches, we can rejoice in our sufferings. And I want us to look at how that is possible. So I've got three gospel truths. If you're taking notes, when you came in here, you should have gotten a weekly on the back. You can fill in some blanks and and also take notes there. But the first gospel truth I want you to see is that if we are going to suffer joyfully, we must understand why we are suffering. It's important to understand the why of suffering. Paul says in Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings, and here's the why, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? We'll come back to that in a minute. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, what what was the stewardship that was entrusted to Paul? He says it right here, to make the word of God fully known. Not just part of the word of God, but all of the word of God. Don't just pick and choose. We want to receive all of the word of God. So when Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings, we need to be clear Here that he's not saying that he enjoys experiencing pain and grief. Just give me more pain and grief. I I love, he's not a, a masochist who rejoiced because he was suffering, but rather he rejoiced in his sufferings. Not be he didn't rejoice because he was suffering, but he rejoiced in the midst of his suffering. Verse 24: Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, to make the word of God known fully. That's the reason that he suffered. Um, Verse 24 says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Jump down to verse 25. You can see where it says, to make the word of God fully known. And Paul understood why he was was suffering. It's important that we understand why are we going to suffer. It's to make the word of God fully known to others. And here's the why. Why? So they could come to know Jesus. Seeing others come to Jesus gave the Apostle Paul a joy greater than the suffering that he was experiencing. It's like the mom or the grandma at Thanksgiving or Christmas slaving in the back kitchen, sweat just hours and hours before the family gets there. They come and everyone sits down to eat and she doesn't. And you all you guys know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, come on, sit down, sit down. And she can't sit down. Why? Until she knows everybody is enjoying the party. It's like Ashley last night. She could not sit down. She wanted to make sure everybody, the mom, this is a great example here. Thank you for being here, Ashley. 
It's a great example of what it looks like to suffer for others because the joy is greater than the suffering. And then in verse 24, I want to look at that statement that says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, in isolation, this sounds heretical, doesn't it? On the surface, it seems to imply that Jesus' work on the cross to make atonement for our sins was somehow insufficient. It wasn't enough. That when he cried out, it was finished, he should have said, almost. Um, Prior to taking his last breath, it sounds like there's still work that needs to be done by Paul and you and me if we're going to have our sins covered up. and that, that somehow fill up what is lacking in, in Christ's suffering, that, that means to finish what Christ did not finish. But because Scripture interprets Scripture, as we are studying the Word of God, we must know the Word of God throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Because Scripture interprets Scripture, we know that that is not what this text is talking about. It's not talking about Jesus, his atoning work not being enough. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, which is when he died on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Romans 8.1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down. You know why he sat down? Because it was finished. There was no more work to be done for the atonement of sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, it is finished. Let me make clear that the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross fully and completely atoned for all our sins, making forgiveness available for everyone who will come to Jesus, repent of their sin, and put their faith in him. That is the wonderful promise. So Paul is not saying that that is what, uh, that Jesus's work was insufficient. So The question that remains is, what is? I don't know. Let's go on. No, I'm kidding. Um, Let me go. That was horrible, wasn't it? Yeah. So what is it? What what is it? What does filling up what is lacking mean? Well, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so Paul uses this phrase in another letter that he wrote to a church, the church in Philippi. He uses that phrase... uh, when he was speaking about a man named Epaphroditus who had just brought Paul um, financial aid from the Philippian church. Y'all following me on this? Epaphroditus brings an offering to Paul, and Paul writes a letter back to the Philippian church. And to the Philippian church, he said this. He, speaking of Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Here it is. Here's the phrase, to complete or fill up what was lacking in your service to me. So we have to ask the question when we're, we're asking, what, what was lacking? What was uh, Epaphroditus uh, filling up that the Philippians didn't do completely? It's not, he didn't add a little bit more money to it, to the gift. That's not what, what he was lacking. What was lacking is, is them being able to physically get the gift to Paul. And so Epaphroditus filled it up by taking it to him. And in the same way, in our passage, uh, in the same way that Epaphroditus suffered to complete the expression of love from the church in Philippi to Paul, in the exact same way, Paul is saying that he has joyfully suffered with Christ 
Not to buy the church. That's what Jesus did. But to build it. He suffers to help build the church. That's what's lacking. That's what's incomplete by delivering the gospel to those who have never heard. That's what Paul is saying that was lacking. Paul understood that his sufferings were the means by which others would see and hear the gospel of Jesus and be saved. And if we are going to rejoice in our sufferings, we need to understand that the gospel is advanced through us to others through trials and difficulties. It will not be easy, church. We talk about being a church in the community that brings the gospel. We got to count the cost. It is difficult, and we must understand why we are suffering. Secondly, if we are going to learn to rejoice in our sufferings, Jesus must be the message we proclaim. Verse 27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. Paul was passionate about Jesus being the central message. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, when he went to the Corinthians, here's what he said. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2, 1 warns us that therefore we have to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's speaking about the gospel. We have to pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. It's easy to drift, isn't it, church? To drift away from Christ, to drift away from his message, to lose our passion. And there is a temptation, if we're honest, to kind of water down the gospel. Kind of only talk about, do you want to go to heaven when you die? But not talk about why Jesus died, what the true reason is. We have to to fight past the temptation to, to water down the message. We have to preach the entire message. Look at verse 28. Again, it says, him we proclaim, and there's three things we need to pay attention to after that. Warning everyone. Okay, don't, don't move past that. Warning everyone. What are we warning everyone? We're warning everyone of the coming judgment. That's something people don't want to hear. They don't like to hear. I actually don't like to hear that there is a coming judgment. It's, it's, it's a heavy, heavy truth, but it's true, okay? Fortunately, that's not the end of the truth, but we have to preach that. You will not appreciate Christ if you don't understand why he died, the price he paid. 2 Corinthians 5.10, speaking of the judgment, says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And look at 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, It is a fearful thing, right, to stand before the Lord. We persuade others. We plead with others. Repent. Come to Christ. Flee the coming wrath. So Paul says we proclaim warning everyone. And then he says, and teaching everyone. What are are we to teach? What are you to teach as a disciple 
making a disciple. What are you to teach? The Word of God. That's what I'm to teach, the Word of God. That's, and, and in Matthew, how do I know this? Because in Matthew 28, when Jesus is given the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's what Jesus clearly t- teaches us. And he says to do it with all wisdom. Now, this, is, this little piece that with all wisdom is often a piece that we leave out. Christians, we can be, church, we can be really unwise in the way we do things. Um, one of them, and I've done it before, is go up to a perfect, perfect stranger. Hey, um, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? Why don't you come to my church and find out? That's, that's kind of creepy, isn't it? That we, now, for us, in context, we know. But if you're totally, it's like flashing the light like this. And we've got to be wise about that. And we've got to be wise about how we deal with one another too, right? Uh, I don't know. It is so easy for me and to look at other people's failures. It's easy for you to do it too and to be impatient and just to get annoyed with your brother or sister in Christ, wanting others to get their act totally together while you totally overlook and forget your own personal deficiencies. And one of the things you need to understand about sheep is, and I didn't know this until I came across a video we're going to see in just a second, but sheep get stuck on their backs and can't get up without help. Uh, If they're left there, they will eventually die. And so I want to show you a video of this just so you'll know I'm not making this up. When I saw that video, I was like, oh my word. A lot of us are on our backs. Notice the, the shepherd didn't kick the sheep and said, get up. Or it's your fault that you're there, get up. And notice once he got it rolled over, the sheep wasn't getting ready to get up and run. It took time. I watched another video that showed a sheep that must have been on its back a lot longer, and it kept falling back down and rolling back over on its back. I was like, that is such a picture, isn't it, of us, of of uh, people that were discipling, even of myself. I mean, we need, now, you know, we don't want to just go, okay, you can lay on your back. Why? They'll die. Sheep will die if they stay on their back. So we don't want to just leave someone on their back and say, oh, it's okay for you to stay back there. It is not okay. But the way that we deal with one another, it has to be with wisdom. It has to be with patience. It has to be sometimes uh, firmness. Sometimes, all right, you've been on your back long enough. We're getting you up. And that's where the sheep, uh, when it gets up, needs to be around it. A sheep laying on its back is, is prey to be taken by the enemy. And we just need to remember that about one another. When somebody, I want you to think about that person that's annoying you right now because they're on their back and pray for them, right? Pray that the Lord will help you to know how to uh, gently get them on their feet and get them back to, to good health. So if we are going to learn to rejoice in our sufferings, number one, we have to understand why we're suffering. Number two, Jesus has to be the message that we proclaim. And then number three, we need God's power if we are going to persevere. Paul says this in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What stood out there in that passage for you? Was it I toil, struggle? Usually that's what it is for me. Man, i got to do this. I've got to just man up and just grind through this. That's not what Paul says here. He says, 
For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Jesus puts energy in us. It's not us, it's him in us, empowering us, that powerfully works within us. And so Paul is dependent on Jesus to empower him to be able to rejoice in his sufferings. It's not enough to just know why you're suffering. It's not enough even just to proclaim Jesus. We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for this to happen. And so, you know, when we are suffering with Jesus, when we're suffering for Jesus, we can get tired, we get weary, we get frustrated, we get disillusioned, we want to quit. Um, This can be my testimony that I'm sharing right now. How often do I want to quit? Sometimes every single day. I just want to quit being a Christian. I want to quit being a pastor. I want to quit doing what I'm, I'm, I want to quit being a dad, a husband. I just want to go somewhere else out in the West where there's no problems. The only problem is I would be there because wherever you go, there you are. The problems will come with you. So what's the the solution to that? For me, is I have to press a reset button every single morning when I get out of bed. I don't know what your rhythm is, but mine is to get out of bed, go make some coffee so I can get woken up, drink about a half a gallon of water, and then go and be with the Lord by myself and get into his word, spend time praying. And God does something in those times, doesn't he? I can get up going, I can't go on. And I will get in the word of God, whatever the passage is I'm in, and he will give me a promise. He's told me lately, I am your light. I am your stronghold. And David says that. He says, I am your salvation. You're not going to save yourself, James from whatever your trial is. I will save you. And then David says, you know what? When I'm in that mindset, an entire army could be camped around me, and I'm not afraid at all. That kind of word on a daily basis, give us this day our daily bread. we got to get fresh manna every day. So who do you joyfully suffer for? Let's come back around to the question I asked at the very beginning. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, let me ask you this. Do you understand the countless number of people who have suffered before you so that you would put your faith in Jesus? They faithfully suffered to faithfully pass the baton to the next generation and the generations to come. And I want to end this morning by giving a, 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 telling the a true life story of a man, man who was uh, partly responsible responsible for me coming to faith in Jesus. I've talked a little bit about him before. His name was Adoniram Judson. We named our last child after him because we ran out of names. But also, uh, let, me, let me explain how you say that name too because I know it's not a common English name. Adonai, that's the name of God, Rome. Adonai, Rome. Okay. We call him Addo, but if you want to call him Adoniram, It's uh, his full name. But um, there's two resources that I got my information from. It's uh, The Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. It is an amazing, it's a book about that thick. When I picked it up, I couldn't put it down. It's so amazing, the life story about him. And uh, John Piper took that book and he sent out a PDF that you can download online and and read it. It's a a very uh, summary of this book and other resources. And I quote a lot from it. I'm going to be reading a lot from it this morning. 
uh, as I share this story. But I want you to listen to what Adoniram Judson went through in order to bring the gospel. He was born in 1788, and his father was a pastor, and it was evident to all that Adoniram was a child prodigy because his mother taught him to read in a week when he was three years old. And at the age of 16, he enrolled at Brown University as a sophomore and graduated at the top of his class three years later. While in school, he met a guy and became friends with someone who influenced him, a young deist by the name of Jacob Eames, Jacob Eames. And by the time he graduated from Brown, he had totally lost his Christian faith, which obviously broke the hearts of his parents. In 1808, at the age of 20, Adoniram decided that he was going to be like the prodigal son, and he set his hopes on going to New York in, being, in, in hopes of being, uh, becoming a great writer of the theater. That actually never happened. But while he was in New York, he surrounded himself with bad company. And as he said later, quote, a, he was a reckless vagabond. He lived a, a reckless vagabond life, finding lodgings where he could and bilking the landlord. I had to look up that word bilking. means to swindle. But bilking the landlord where he found opportunity. During one of his travels, he stayed in a small village inn where he had never been before, and the innkeeper made him aware that he would be lodging in a room next to someone who was terminally sick. And all throughout the night, he heard low voices and groans and gasps coming from the, next, the room next door. And to his surprise, it caused him to begin to soberly think about his own eternity whether or not he himself was prepared to die. Now, the next morning while he was checking out, Adoniram asked about the welfare of the man next door, and the innkeeper re replied, he is dead. On his way out, he asked, do you know who he was? The innkeeper replied, oh, yes, young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Now, this obviously rattled at an arm's cage. And now, it, Piper says, it was sure. God was on his trail like the Apostle Paul in the Damascus Road, and there was no escape. Shortly after this, he was converted, and then he entered into Andover Seminary in October of 1808. And at that time, his heart began to burn for missions, oversee missions. And during that same time, he met a lady by the name of Anne Hasseltine. And after one month, he declared his intentions to marry her, and he wrote to her father the following letter. I want to read that, that little letter to you because it kind of just shows us where we are today as a culture. He says, I have now to ask whether you could consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home? and died for her and for you? 
for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon, soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall re, uh, resound to her Savior from heathen, heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's crazy, isn't it? have that type of mindset. It's, it's interesting. I've been on lots of mission trips, but I knew I was coming back in two or three weeks. When they went on mission trips, they knew I literally could die on this. Her father amazingly said that she could make up her own mind. He was not going to do that for her. And she said yes. And they were married a year and a half later on February 5th, 1812. And shortly after this, they left their comforts of America and set out, sail, uh, set out sail for Burma, not knowing that Adoniram would never see his mother or his father or his brother again in this life. After arriving on July 13th, 1813, they began a lifelong battle in the 108-degree heat with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries. Missionary time in their days was very slow. Sometimes it would take up to two years for a letter to, tr to cross the sea to get from one family to the other. It was a, uh, a definitely a, a different world back then. If someone was sick, what they would do, and it was, it was uh, a very uh, incurable sickness where they were at, they would send them out on a sea voyage hoping that the salt water would help to heal them. Adoniram took uh, several of these um, journeys while he was sick. He had a lot of stomach pains that he had to fight through. Eight years into their mission, Anne was so sick that the only hope for her was to take her back to the U.S., and that meant that they were separated. Anne and Adoniram were separated for two years and four months. Through all the struggles with sickness and interruptions, Judson labored to learn the language, translate the Bible, into the Burmese tongue and do evangelism on the streets. It was six years before the first convert was baptized. In May of, of, of 1823, Britain attacked Burma, and all male Westerners were immediately viewed as spies, and so Adoniram was dragged away from his home and thrown into prison, leaving Anne, who was pregnant, to defend herself. His feet were fettered at night, um, and a long horizontal bamboo pole was uh, lower, uh, put between their legs, and, and they were, he was raised up at night with only his shoulders and head touching the ground. Those imprisoned got parasites in their hair amid the rotting food and had to have their, their heads shaved bald. Almost a year later, he was still in prison, and, and their, um, he had gaunt, hollow eyes, he was dressed in rags and crippled from the torture that he, had been that he had received from being in prison. At night, the mosquitoes from the rice paddies almost drove them mad as they feasted on their bloody feet. Now, on November 4th, 1825, Judson was suddenly released because the government needed him to be a translator in negotiations with Britain. And so he had been in prison for 17 months at the time. And during that time, Anne's health had broken. She had spent her time trying to care for uh, the baby that had now come and walking back and forth every day two miles 
barefooted to try to get the, um, the Burmese government to release her husband. Uh, her, her health was broken, and um, 11 months later, she died. Six months later, her daughter died. Their daughter died. Soon after this, um, darkness began to settle over at an iron soul. And three months, in three months later in July, after the death of his little girl, he got word that his father had died eight months earlier. And as you might imagine, the mental, spiritual, and psychological effects of these losses were so devastating and so self-doubt overtook Adoniram's mind. And he wondered if he had become a missionary for ambition and fame instead of humility and self-denying love. And so in October of 1828, he went and built a hut out in the jungle and he moved out on October 24th, 1828, the second anniversary of Anne's death. He moved out to live in total isolation. He dug a grave next to his hut and sat beside it, contemplating the stages of the body's disillusion. Now, after this, his brother, El Nathan, died on May 8th, 1829, at the age of 35. But ironically, this event proved to be Adoniram's turning point. Because when he had left from the U.S., his brother was not a believer, and he had been pleading with him all the way to the ship to, put, to give his faith, to give his heart to Jesus. He found out that before his brother died, he had put his faith in Jesus. And this proved to be the turning point in Adoniram's life. God used this event somehow to awaken him. And so all through the year 1830, Adoniram began to climb out of this darkness. And in 1831... The next year, something amazing happened. There was a new spirit in the land, and Judson wrote this. He said, The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two, three months' journey. And they say, sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others from other areas, 100 miles away, would say, sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, pray give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the company, uh, country where the name of Jesus Christ is little known, would come to him and say, are you Jesus Christ's man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus. Three years later, Adoniram married Sarah Boardman, who was a, uh, another missionary who was a widow. And they had eight children together, um, but only five survived childhood. Eleven years later, Sarah uh, was so sick that they all, uh, they both had to sail to America with the three oldest children, and they left the three youngest behind, one of whom died before Judson could return. Judson had not been to America now for 33 years and was only returning for the sake of his wife's health. 
And as they rounded the tip of Africa on September 1845, Sarah died. The ship took time to drop anchor long enough to dig a grave and bury Sarah. And then they got back in the ship and sailed on. But this time, Adoniram did not descend into the depths as before. He had his children, but even more, his sufferings had disengaged him from, the, from hoping for too much in this world. He was learning how to hate his life in this world without bitterness or, de- or depression. He had one passion, and that was to return back to Burma. But before returning, Adoniram, who was now 57 years old, married a young 29-year-old woman, uh, which was a, her name was Emily Chubbuck. It was scandalous, and Piper says, but Ad- Adoniram didn't give a flip. So if he can say that in the pulpit, I can say that. And God gave them uh, four of the happiest years of their lives. They had one child um, before sickness attacked Adoniram again, and the only hope was, uh, for him was to go back out into the ocean uh, and take a sea voyage. And at uh, 15 minutes after 4 on Friday afternoon, April 12, 1850, Adoniram Judson died at sea. away from all his family in Burmese church. That evening, the crew assembled quietly. The port was opened. There were no prayers. And the captain, uh, because none of the crew were believers, the captain gave the order. The coffin slid through the port into the night. The location was latitude 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east, a few hundred miles west of the mountains of Burma. And the ship sailed on toward the Isle of France that evening. Ten days later, Emily gave birth to their second child who died, who died at childbirth. She learned four months later that her husband was dead. She returned to New England that next January and died of tuberculosis three years later at the age of 37. The Burmese Bible was completed. The dictionary was done. Hundreds of converts were leading the church. And today it's said that there's about 3,700 congregations of Baptists in Myanmar, which is the new name for Burma, who trace their origin to this man's labors of love. Um, and I am one of those who trace my Christian origins to faith, to Adoniram Judson's labors of love, my faith, Because, as many of you know, my father was born in Burma. Um, He was actually born in an area where Adoniram had uh, infiltrated with the gospel, and disciples later came and took it to what's called the Chin State. Um, So this was years, many years before my father was ever uh, born. But because Adoniram did that, the gospel went to Burma. He heard the gospel when he was a young boy, uh, received Christ, became a believer, came to the U.S. on a medical scholarship, met my mom at, um, in uh, school, and he translated, my father translated the Bible into his native language back uh, in Burma. And uh, my mom and my dad faithfully taught me the gospel because Adoniram was faithful to give the gospel. And now I stand before you 
preaching the gospel. So in one sense, you also have been affected by the love that Adoniram did when he suffered joyfully. And I've also gone back five or six times to Burma and had the privilege of preaching the gospel. So it's a full circle cycle uh, when I think about my faith. Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the last time I'm going to ask you, one last time, who do you joyfully suffer for, for the sake of the gospel? Who do you think's worth it? And are you willing to joyfully suffer to faithfully present to the next generation and to this current generation to hand the baton faithfully of the gospel of Jesus. And you know, as we are preparing to relocate, that is one of our focuses. That is one of our goals. We want to relocate in a community where we can take the gospel and affect that community with the gospel. Knowing that True gospel ministry is difficult. It's going to be accompanied with suffering, but it is possible to rejoice in the midst of it. And so what are you doing with the life that God has entrusted to you? What are you pursuing? Is it of eternal or temporal value? Are you willing to give up comfort and convenience and preferences to see God move through us to make Jesus known, his greatness known in Asheville? That's a question that that we need to be asking ourselves. And that's why, again, while we're taking 33 days of uh, prayer and fasting right now, um, if you didn't get one of these cards when you came in, uh, hopefully you can pick one up on the way out. But We want to be focused this week. Um, It says on the back, awaken our hearts. And really what that awakening is, is to what I was just talking about. That we would remember why we're here. To know God, to know Jesus, and to joyfully make him known. So I'm going to pray for us about that. And then we will take a time of communion together. Father, we praise you for who you are. You're the perfect Father, and you never tell us to do something that you have not already done. You have not asked us to to die or to give up anything more than you have already done by dying for us, by sending your Son by giving up all things. So I ask that you would help us individually and corporately to remember how, Jesus, you joyfully died for us. And I pray that you would awaken us. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us a fresh burden for those around us who have not yet come to know you in this generation and in the generation to come. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.